Hello, and welcome to the Science and the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Tamara Johnson. Today's podcast will focus on the history of science, particularly cellular biology. You might remember from just about any biology textbook you had in school, a drawing of the inside of a cell. You've got your nucleus, mitochondria, rough and smooth endoplasmic reticulum, etc., and nice little one-liners about what each one of those organelles does. Remember? So it's really easy to take it for granted, looking at this cartoony little cell, that people have just always known this stuff. After all, it's so basic it's in your school books when you're a kid. Actually, though, a lot of the methods and technologies to study cell biology weren't even developed until around the middle of the 20th century. It took decades and many brilliant, passionate careers to make sense of it all. Today we're joined by historian of science Carol Moberg, author of the recently published book Entering an Unseen World, about the origins and development of modern cell biology. We're also joined by Joseph Luna, a graduate fellow at the Rockefeller University, studying the role of viral factors in cancer. Carol's book does a beautiful job of illustrating the long process, involving multiple careers, collaborations, competitions, and innovations, of scientific discovery. This process is really what science is all about. However, when most of us are learning about science, what we encounter, at first at least, are usually facts, capital F. Now, facts are great, I certainly love them, but the process of discovering them, with all its ups, downs, surprises, frustrations, thrills, is way too often presented as a vague background if it comes up at all. I think this does a disservice, not only to the scientists who've dedicated their lives to putting together the pieces of what we learn about as a finished puzzle, but also to anyone learning about science. The pursuit of knowledge is way more creative and complicated than a barrage of facts can convey on its own. Learning about science as a finished product, with all the facts already sorted out, sucks the adventure out of it. And it sort of cuts us off from the really awesome legacy of discovery that humans have been and continue to be forging. Okay, so let's get started. Joseph, let's begin with you. What do you, as a young scientist, see as the value of studying the history of science? Yeah, I, I think that it's incredibly important, but I mean, it, okay, it, it really depends because it really depends on the science field because you can talk to any physicists or chemists or chemist and they, you know, will go on quoting what, you know, Robert Boyle did or what Isaac Newton did or wrote and, you know, they can actually, but you ask a biologist this and they can't go beyond 10 years ago. Anything before that is considered ancient history. And, and I think that's, that's kind of a mistake, you know, uh, because you know, there, there is, I'll give you one example. In the first year of virology course, um, there's a professor here who, who started his, his uh, uh, lecture by saying, oh, as you all know from reading Pasteur's famous book on maladies of the soil, and everyone drew a blank. And he caught, he, he caught this. And, and uh, so then, okay, let's make it easier. As you all know from reading uh, Darwin's Origin of the Species, and it's still a blank. And then he basically excoriated the entire class for never having read those. You know, and, and, and I hadn't either. I was just as guilty. This is my first year. So what? So the next day I ordered them both on Amazon and read them. And you realize that, you know, so many themes in biology, um, you know, we often reinvent the wheel. You know, Pasteur had a lot figured out before we even had a clue of, of what was going on with genetics. But he got basically a lot of the moving parts basically right. And so all of really enterprising graduate student needs to do is just steal indiscriminately from from all of them because from 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 the history of science because there are so many 
there's so many things that, that, that they would have only dreamed of being able to do now that most students, you know, think that they're rediscover that they're discovering something completely new when it was probably found, you know, decades ago, you know, centuries ago in some cases. So, you know, I think that having an awareness of, of, of the history of science is important. It's a lot more difficult because it's not, it's not as, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say that any history of science is linear, but biology is very much a science of exceptions, right? Whereas, so it's much harder to follow. It's much harder to know, to know, to know whether or not the science that you're chasing is, um, historically is, you know, turn, later turned out to be wrong. Um, but having an awareness, I think, for, for students even today and for practicing scientists today that goes beyond 10 years is, I think, very valuable. Uh, to the degree that it's possible, I think that it really, you know, uh, this is why books like Carol's are so important, because for laymen and scientists alike, you really get a sense of an arc uh, within biology that is otherwise kind of lost in the shuffle of thousands and thousands of papers, right? And, and occasionally you'll get a scientist who can synthesize, you know, and summarize a, a field, but it's still often directed um, in, uh, in to a small audience, or it's not very popular, or, or it's not very accessible even to working mm -hmm. scientists. Um, and so, yeah, I think that there are challenges toward, for, you know, getting the information to students. But once, you know, once a student really kind of dives in, you know, there's, there's no shortage of, of fun ideas to rediscover and explore and even translate those into experiments you can do in the lab. Um, so for me, I think that's, that's really the, the, the fun part of, of really trying to understand you know, how biologists in the past have approached different questions and, you know, what we can learn from them is, I think, uh, something that continues. And Carol, what were your goals in writing this book? The reception to this book from people, students, postdocs, they have actually come up to me and said, you have told the human story. And that was a deliberate part of this book was not getting these people to write not the technical experimental details but to say what they were thinking who they worked with how they got along and that's what is now being appreciated because now they understand how scientists work so that's been very rewarding part of the book one of my favorite parts of the book is a description by Roland Hotchkiss of his trip he and Keith Porter took to collect frog specimens Roland Hotchkiss was a biochemist whose work helped to establish the role of DNA as genetic material, and he contributed to the development of the first antibiotics. Keith Porter took the first electron micrograph of an intact cell, and he was also involved in the development of many of the methodologies used to study cell biology. He worked a lot with frog embryos. So for anyone listening who hasn't worked in a lab, what you do is you just go online and order up a bunch of animals, say mice. And not only that, you can order special genetic versions of your mice depending on what you want to study. You certainly don't have to go catch them yourself. Or so, like you said to me the other day about tissue culture, you never realize. You, you just go and order it from a, a commercial firm. You don't realize it. Keith Porter told the story of how he became, founded the Tissue Culture Association so that he could create media that everybody would use and experiments would be standardized. And he said, you have no idea when he told this later. What, uh, that we once had to make our own our own tissue culture from scratch. And that's a very hard thing for people to understand. They open a textbook, they say, go order this, and it's mm -hmm. there. And so, as you said, it, it's an amazing experience to see how that developed. 
Well, the real point of the book is the title, The Unseen World, is what is the unseen world, and so how they got there. So just as you said about the, the pictures of the cell, everybody takes them for granted, but they didn't then. They didn't know whether they even had artifacts. And uh, they, t they experimented with hundreds of different species, you know, plants, animals, whatever, and found that there would be the same s parts in cell in all of these. And that's really what Keith Porter was extraordinary um, scientist for. A lot of the stories in the book illustrate the importance of collaboration. What happened, of course, in this story was when Ralph and Murphy disagreed on the cause of this chicken tumor. Just to interject, Peyton Rouse and James Murphy were pathologists who studied cancerous tumors in chickens in the early 1900s. And, and Rouse said it was a virus. Murphy said, no, it's a chemical inside the cell. So they parted company fairly well. And 10 years later, Murphy took up the work. And he really wanted to know the nature of the agent that was causing this cancer. So he brought in a lot of different people from different fields. So he had he had parasitologists, embryologists, biologists, chemists, and each one would attack the problem from their own perspective. But when they got together in the lab, which was a very small lab, they would work together on a problem. And so that's how they first tried chemistry, and then they got the electron microscope, and then they got tissue culture, and then finally they put it all together. And so it took a good 50 years for this to happen. It didn't happen overnight. And, and as that went along, they all developed their own tools, created them, uh, and then used them, not always knowing what they were going to do or what they were going to find, but they tried a lot of things. So it was a long period of gestation. Right. Um... You know, I think, you know, it's interesting, right, because Carol has written a lot about uh, uh, various examples throughout Rockefeller history of how this occurs. And, and what's unique about this place is that it still occurred. Like, I, I would argue that collaboration is sort of essential to the lifeblood of this place. You know, whereas in, instead of the lunchroom, now we have uh, the faculty club, which has free beer three times a week and that's where that's where that's where the science is born that's where you know uh, but the, the you know the, the the basic idea though is that this place retains uh, in my view the the unique character of being small enough and concentrated enough such that a lot of these collaborations sort of happen on their own you know like you when when you're as excited about your science and you're surrounded by people who are excited about their science you know you want to tell the world Another thing that strikes you when you're reading the book is the relationship between scientific knowledge and technology. Researchers had to be really cunning inventors, as well as good scientists. There are all these stories in the book of people having to design their own equipment, like centrifuge models and beautiful glass pumps, to address their particular research problems. The range of skills and creativity involved are pretty incredible. They, they asked good questions. They knew what they wanted to, to see or get, but they would go to the glass blower, the instrument shop, the machine shop, and they would say, I want to do this, can you help me? Well, microtomes, for one thing, have been around for 200 years, but somehow when you got to the electron microscope, you needed a, a tissue slice that's so thin that the electron beams could go through it. So, you know, then they found they had a rough microtome, a prototype, and then came along Porter with the instrument maker, Joseph Blum, and made uh, an instrument. They made every part of it. 
and it became one of the most successful microtomes ever when it went commercial um, but it still was an amazing machine and the instrument makers worked a hundred hours to make each one of these machines and they made several dozen of them for people outside before they ever became commercial so they they created their own tools and it was really important yeah you know it, it's funny because like you 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 read about how these remarkable things were made. I mean, this is this is when you know you had to essentially invent the entire thing from scratch, machine it, and do everything. Um, you know that in some capacity that still sort of goes on, but it's no longer about. In some instances, it is about making a, a physical object. But you know, I sort of see the same level of artistry, and often in in like circuit design or in uh, in algorithm design, or you know, you have. Um, the process is essentially still the same. You, you know what question you're asking and you're trying to design something that can help you unequivocally answer that question that, that doesn't leave ambi too much ambiguity uh, in there. And, and you know, I think the examples from early cell biology when it comes to you know, building and using uh, microtomes or, or electron micrographs and then wondering what is it that we're looking at mm -hmm. you know and trying to manage all of the assumptions I mean we take so much for granted when we see a nice little cartoon of a ribosome you know in a uh, in, in a cell when you're when when you know you really dig in uh, you realize that wow none of this you know there was competing models that had nothing to do with the way it actually turned out and the fact that you can settle upon something that as far as we know is basically true at this point that ribosomes are the protein production factories of the cell you know that that that's remarkable like for me like that's that's the that's the type of science that every scientist strives for is something that is almost that unassailable um, and to the degree that that you know you need to invent so much technology that relies upon so many different uh, uh, things and people it's you know you can almost argue that all of these discoveries are written with the names of all those people you know like they're and and so for some of these things like when you you know when you look at that diagram you can almost see like ah there's there's George Pilati right there's there you know like that what's one vesicle going from the the ER to the Golgi I mean that's like 20 careers right there <laughs> um, so I, I think that yeah the 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 technology makes the science possible. It opens the doors, uh, and the scientist who you know has to learn how to leverage that technology to come up with something that's not only testable but interpretable. You know, I think that that creative spark to say this is how it's working, that courage to say this is how I think it works, and and all other competing hypotheses, which at the time may be very valid. You know, you don't really know which way it's going to pan out, but someone was right or mo few people or multiple people are right you know we're still arguing over some of these things but um, yeah I think that, that that's what makes the the, the technological aspect of it uh, so important and so powerful. How hard is it to do research into these stories? If you want to read the papers about the science there are journal archives but if you want to get at the human stories where are they? Are they recorded? Or are they hard to find? Is there a danger of them being lost forever? What's involved? Doing your research for this book was really fun, really a lot of fun, and Keith Porter made it happen. So happened that Keith saved everything. And so going through just hundreds and hundreds of boxes of material, you have all the letters he wrote, uh, you have all the manuscripts he never published, 
Um, and it happened also with Albert Claude. And then we had personal stories written by other people. I want to say that doing this kind of research today is very difficult, mostly because of nothing is on paper anymore. Most of the stuff that I found was on paper. And they were wonderful letters and wonderful comments, critical comments, things that you couldn't find by digging through everybody's email. And people aren't saving the email. So it, it's a, a really a serious problem. But doing this history was fun. Does studying the history of research suggest ideas for future experiments? For instance, new uses for old technologies or updates to methodologies using modern techniques or something like that? I could give you a long story. Uh, it's about the Corel Lindbergh perfusion pump. Uh, it's a beautiful piece of glass. It was blown here in our glass blowing shop. It was, it was designed by Charles Lindbergh, the pilot, who flew across the Atlantic. But it was designed for Alexei Corel, who was already a Nobel Prize winner for suturing um, vessels together. He wanted an instrument that could keep a tissue, uh, an organ alive, not just a tissue or a tissue culture. So Lindbergh designed this beautiful instrument. It's very complicated. Uh, they, they were really, it was at the World's Fair, they were on Time magazine. But then Corel left here in 38, and it looked like that was finished. Well, about 15 years later, a cardiac surgeon came here and wanted to know where these pumps were. And the president said, take them. We don't want them anymore, the person who's using them. Well, it turned out Theodore Malinin, who was this surgeon, connected again with Charles Lindbergh and learned how to use this pump. And he, has, he actually has done he actually done experiments with, and he brought films of them being done. And when he was here and showed those films to us, he said, these, these instruments will still be valuable for people studying viruses growing in tissues. Well, I haven't quite seen that, but only a few months ago, I went to a lecture, a woman who's up at Truro College in Harlem, and she is using perfusion pumps to study the effect of drugs on tissues. So it's like, you know, three different waves, but the idea is that you have this um, anaerobic environment that, that you can keep things alive. Uh, Lindbergh kept a cat thyroid alive for about three or four days, and they could watch it and move it. So the fluid is perfused, the blood solution and the, uh, the oxygen is very complicated but yet it worked for what they wanted to do, and now they're finding new uses for it. So I think it's pretty interesting. Yeah, I, I also, uh, uh, you know, for me, a, a lot of the, the power of these instruments is, is definitely a lot in their symbolic power, and I'll give you an example. Um, Thomas Rivers, who was the second director of the hospital here, uh, he essentially founded modern virology as we know it. He's the, the first person to really demonstrate that the difference between a bacterium and a virus. Back then, a virus could have been a very, very tiny bacteria. There was really nothing uh, to, to separate those two possibilities. But he's the one that, he wrote the first virology textbook and, and established some of the earliest ways to culture viruses uh, in the laboratory. And a few of his um, culture dishes are in the instrument collection. Um, they serve no practical purpose now, obviously, other than like, whoa, the first vaccinia cultures were, 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 were done in this little glass. 
Um, but you can draw kind of like a, a, a line through that sort of thinking, because like in the, in, in the 1970s, for instance, uh, William Traeger, who was a professor here, figured out how to culture the malaria parasite. And, you know, his glass culture vessels are also in the collection. You know, and even, even uh, as late as um, seven, eight years ago, we couldn't culture hepatitis C virus, the full virus. Uh, and then in 2005, um, uh, the Rice Lab here basically published a way to do it. You know, it really didn't rely upon the actual instrument, like the glassware. At that point, they're all plastic petri dishes and relied much more upon kind of molecular biology inventiveness and trying to actually clone a virus that was that could live in a cell and not peter out and die and then actually still cause disease in a chimp. Uh, and so they showed that, you know, and, and, and you know, one could argue that, all right, you can take that little plastic dish and decontaminate it and put it in the collection too, you know, because I think that's a lot of where the power comes from. You really get a sense as to um, where this place came from. Uh, and, and for a lot of things, you can, you can draw a line to, you know, it, the, there's still a lot of uh, uh, things that people study here that are very much related to, to questions that um, people had, you know, when this place was founded. And so it's nice to have those reminders um, because that's what really makes um, you as a scientist feel that, that your, your work is in a much bigger context you know, uh, uh, not only in an institutional sense and in like in a global sense, but in a time sense, you know, you can trace a direct path to, um, you know, any one of the first virologists playing around with their culture dishes because that's what we do all the time. Thank you both so much. The book, once again, is called Entering an Unseen World. That's it for this Science in the City podcast. For more, visit scienceinthecity.org. You can also follow us on social media. We're Sci and the City on Twitter and Science and the City on Facebook. Be in touch. We love hearing from you. Thanks for listening.